Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Next, we have an interesting story about a controversial treatment. The FDA has banned the use of an electric shock treatment, but there's still one school using it. The Judge Rottenberg Educational Center in Massachusetts, which deals with some of the most difficult developmental and emotional disability cases in the country, uses what's called a GED device to shock students to modify their behavior. Disability rights advocates and former residents have spoken out against this practice, but interestingly, Some parents of those currently enrolled that have received this treatment support it and say it's the only thing that works. For more on this controversial treatment, we'll speak to Kevin Monaghan, senior producer at the investigative unit at NBC News. The JRC is, uh, as you said, deals with people with, with really extreme developmental disabilities and emotional disorders. And, and as you also said, you know, many of them are known for sort of, you know, injuring themselves, perhaps others. So, So these are extreme behaviors that they're dealing with to start with. But the GED, the graduated electronic uh, decelerator, is basically what you said. It's a it's a skin shock that uh, is not used as a as a therapy per se, but as a way to to modify um, people's behavior. So um, it's been used for quite some time on patients who uh, may be injuring themselves or others. Uh, it is a backpack that's hooked up to the student and uh, with electrodes. You know, some are on arms, some are on legs, other parts of the body, and they wear them often 24 t- hours a day. And when they exhibit some sort of a behavior that uh, that they are not supposed to exhibit, uh, they're shocked. And uh, and uh, it, it is really an you know a fairly seemingly extreme uh, form of uh, managing that behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's especially weird that the student themselves have to wear a backpack with the battery that supplies the shock. I, I was just kind of looking through that just kind of made me shake my head a little bit. But a lot of these, uh, these in these specific instances, these uh, are court-approved treatment plans. So it's not like, you know, some fringe doctor just going crazy and they're shocking a bunch of students. This has been court-approved, and it's gone through the process. And amazingly also, the parents of these uh, students have come forth and said, this is the only treatment that has helped. It's helped them regain some sort of normalcy. And that's really one of the most interesting parts of this story. You know, we went in and met 30 plus parents at a round table. And it's hard not to have sympathy for a parent who's been dealing with, uh, with a, uh, a child or adults now, um, but uh, a child who, you know, maybe this is their third or fourth or fifth institution that they're at and they've been having trouble a lifetime of you know difficulties trying to deal with a son or a daughter who uh, who are really dealing with with difficulties you know injuring staff of other places so for some people's parents this is like a last stop for them and they're very supportive uh, of of the use of the uh, of the device the GED and the treatment, and they say it has changed their child's uh, life. On the other hand, you pit that against human rights uh, lawyers, activists, the United Nations, 
who say there are alternatives to this. This is not the way to uh, to solve these problems alone. So it's a very interesting two sets of groups when you have uh, parents who have had their children in that in that institution for many years who are supportive of uh, this practice. Right. I mean, that's a definitely an interesting wrinkle in that whole thing. Tell me about the involvement of the FDA and then banning the use of these GED things. Obviously, there's been delays because of the pandemic and all and because of uh, I think the facility is fighting back saying that, you know, they ruled wrong on this. But just tell me about their involvement and just why it's still being used. So the FDA has been involved for many years now, uh, and and their um, discussion is banning a medical device, and they've done it very few times in the past. So in uh, March of last year, 2020, they finally, after many years of looking into it, banned the device, and they say it's a, it's a present and unreasonable and substantial risk of illness or injury to a patient or student. Uh, as you said at the top, there are two things that happened. One is that they, they had a stay because of the pandemic. The JRC was given until September to get these students off the device. And they said, because the pandemic is going on, it'd be very difficult for us to do that. And the FDA agreed. So that's one. The other thing is the JRC is pushing back with the Parents Association to appeal that process. And that that is in D.C. right now in the Court of Appeals. And they are appealing the uh, judgment of the FDA saying that they do not have the right to uh, ban the use of a device, not the device itself. It's very complicated, but they're saying that there are other uses of this device. And uh, for, for instance, there's a commercial use for people who may want to stop smoking using a, a skin shock uh, device. And they're saying the FDA cannot pick and choose those uh, uses. Now, this facility, the JRC, does have a history of some scandals with regards to this GED electric device. There's uh, stories about you know some residents being tied down to restraint boards for hours and shocked uh, over 30 times. There's another one where a student was shocked 77 times. Just heartbreakingly, after a prank caller instructed staff to do so. I mean, how do those things get through? How does that happen? Even You mentioned the real two biggest ones. And in, in 2011, video surfaced of Andre McCollins, an 18-year-old student at the time, who was, um, an, uh, he had severe autism, and he was um, put face down on a four-point board. All his limbs were tied down or, or uh, uh, locked down. Um, and he was shocked 31 times. The first one for refusing to take his coat off when asked, and the next 30 for uh, the behavior he exhibited after the first shock. It it really got people's attention. Um, The second incident that you're talking about uh, was in and around that same time when a prank phone call went to one of the houses that these students are living in, uh, uh, saying that they were a supervisor from JRC, and one of the students uh, was shocked 77 times. Uh, that resulted ultimately in the uh, the head of the JRC and the gentleman, Dr. Matthew Israel, who created this device, stepping down. Uh, so there have been some really, there have been some uh, some terrible scandals there as well. I mean, it's just heartbreaking. I saw some of the video of that stuff. It's heartbreaking. And on the face of it, you know, you feel like this obviously should not be used at all. But then, as we've discussed, you know, the parents, over 30 parents 
who've been involved with this over the years say it's the only thing that works in these most difficult of cases. And it's just so hard to square away when you hear some of that stuff. You guys did speak to behavioral health experts, obviously, who said this negative reinforcement is not the way to go. It should be more positive reinforcement. You know, what do they have to say about this? They called it an obsolete treatment. Several of the uh, experts we spoke to said that um, that they're obviously JRC is using a carrot and a stick approach, and uh, and the stick is is the GED, and and they do uh, uh, offer a, a carrot approach as well, which is you know if you act uh, appropriately at, at JRC, you earn credits for gifts and presents and you you get you get the good side uh as well and i think most experts say um things have changed a lot treatments over the last 20 or 30 years and and they all point to this positive reinforcement as something that uh, that most people believe is a better uh, a better idea when dealing with these kind of issues kevin monahan senior producer at nbc news investigative unit thank you very much for joining us Thank you. Thanks for having me. Finally for this week, how many times have you gone to McDonald's for a nice frozen treat only to be told that the ice cream machine is broken? One couple attempted to get to the bottom of why the Taylor ice cream machines that McDonald's uses are always breaking and found that there's a secret repair menu that most workers don't know how to access. This forces them to contact the manufacturer for maintenance, which can definitely slow things down. This couple eventually created a way to hack the machines, only to have Taylor and McDonald's stop them. For more on the fight over hacking these McDonald's ice cream machines, we'll speak to Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired. Jeremy O'Sullivan, who is one of the co-founders of this little company that you referenced called Kitch, K-Y-T-C-H, he and his partner, Melissa Nelson, they basically observed that there was this terrible problem with McDonald's ice cream machines. And I just checked, actually, the number of McDonald's ice cream machines that are broken today in the U.S., well, it's about 8%, which is enormous for a fast food chain. But in in New York City, where I live, it's 20%. Like one in five New York City McDonald's ice cream machines are offline right now, according to McBroken.com, which is a site that tracks this really closely. So this is a a real issue. And this little tiny company, I mean, it's basically just Melissa and Jeremy, to be honest, uh, or at some point they started to grow. And then thanks to McDonald's and Taylor's efforts, they have kind of been squashed. But their goal was to sell this tiny device to let you hack a McDonald's ice cream machine. And this was something that they were selling to franchisees, the owners of McDonald's restaurants, to put inside of their Taylor ice cream machine. And essentially, it would intercept all the data inside of it and then send it out to you know, a web interface or an app and allow you to kind of monitor the conditions of the machine and prevent it from breaking. And it works really well, according to a lot of the franchisees that I spoke to who had been using it. But then, as you might imagine, Taylor, the ice cream machine maker, was not happy about this. And McDonald's, their kind of corporate ally, uh, together these two companies essentially went after a kitchen and destroyed their business, more or less. So I tried to tell the story here of this kind of, you know, two-year-long war between these massive fast food superpowers and this tiny little company. And Kitsch is now essentially just starting to counterattack and they're planning a lawsuit against some of the franchisees who gave their device to Taylor for to be analyzed. And then also likely Taylor itself and maybe even McDonald's too. Let's talk about the machines themselves because they are pretty sophisticated on one front, 
super simple on another front. And I guess O'Sullivan kind of said they're kind of like an Italian sports car. When they're working perfectly, they work great. But any little tiny thing that breaks down, then it becomes a huge mess. So let's talk about why these machines are so special. Well, that wasn't actually Jeremy who said that. That was this other source who calls him or herself McDee Truth and they're an anonymous okay. yeah. Twitter account that basically analyzes McDonald's secrets. And there's also they are also a franchise franchisee themselves, and so they know a lot about how these restaurants operate. And yeah, McDee Truth was the one who described it as a, like an Italian sports car where when it works well, it's it's an incredible display of efficiency, and they can put out like ten ice cream cones in a minute with one of these things, but they just break constantly because they're very fragile and finicky and over-engineered. And you have to disassemble them every two weeks to clean them. And there are so many parts that practically nobody seems capable of reassembling it reliably. There are like 25 or more different tiny rubber O-rings that you have to put all in the correct place or it breaks. (laughs) It just doesn't work. Things like that. So this is essentially like a, it's kind of like a NASA level of complexity for an ice cream (laughs) machine. And that's not a great idea when, you know, these are often operated by, you know, high school age teenagers who who are not very invested in their fast food careers and don't know the ins and outs of all these technicalities. It also has two hoppers and two barrels. So you can do a milkshake and a soft serve simultaneously. Not all the machines are capable of that. Uh, The ones that they sell to McDonald's are. And then they have this four hour cleaning process, a heat treatment. If anybody's gone to a McDonald's overnight and they say, oh, the machine's cleaning right now. This is the other thing of why they might be out of out of service a lot of times is because they go through this rigorous four hour cleaning treatment and if it messes up, it's got to start all over. So that's another big component to this. This heat treatment is really interesting because uh, if you don't have this kind of pasteurization feature in the machine, then the restaurant owner has to throw out all of the ice cream at the end of every day that's left in the machine. And so instead, this machine can heat it up and basically like kill all the microbes inside the mix, the ice cream mix before it's you know refrozen, wow. which is kind of gross, but also probably more sanitary than a lot of other machines. But the problem is that that, that cycle constantly fails uh, in these machines, you know, according to all the franchisees that I talk to for reasons that are often really difficult to figure out. And when, they, when it fails, you have to start it all over. It takes four hours. There are sometimes primetime sales hours. And the error messages that the machine shows you when it fails are totally inscrutable sometimes. And you have to call out Taylor's technician to make sense of them. When in fact, you know, maybe it's just that you have like one inch uh, too much mix, like in the one of the hoppers, it's been overfilled just slightly. That's enough to make it break. And you have to spend hundreds of dollars to figure that out by calling a technician. And that's the kind of thing that Kitsch was designed to fix. But Taylor, you know, Kitsch at least accuses them of essentially running this racket where uh, they basically want to make money from maintenance more than they want their machines to work. A little bit back to Jeremy O'Sullivan and how he got involved in all of this. He wanted to get in on the frozen yogurt craze, but he wanted to create an automated machine. I think early on they called it the Frobot. Uh, and what he was working with was a Taylor machine. And it started having some limited success. He got it into a few places, uh, uh, into a few football stadiums, I think it was. And then they started breaking down. He had to meet certain requirements. So this is why he kind of formed this Kitsch device. And he later changed the name of the company to that. But this is why he formed that device so that he can start hacking into it and monitoring it for himself instead of having to constantly going out and making the service trips himself. Yeah, exactly. Jeremy and Melissa, their first business model was to try to create essentially like a frozen yogurt robot. 
that would be fully automated. And it was built around a tailored machine, like a kind of cabinet with a big screen and a credit card reader so that you could take people and real estate out of the equation and sell people frozen yogurt, just like in handles or a pink berry or whatever. But the problem was that they discovered was that they couldn't keep these tailored machines inside of the robot running. It was just constantly breaking down. They were having to drive out to the football stadium that you referenced to rebuild the tailor machine inside of robot all the time. And so they built this little device that uh, essentially was their solution to try to save their business to monitor the data inside of that tailor machine to try to figure out why it was breaking. And then eventually gave up on robot and made that little device their entire business instead, and which was a much more successful business. I mean, at some points, they had 500 of these little kitsch devices, which have a, a subscription plan inside of ice cream machines in, in McDonald's around the country. They were doubling the number of them every quarter, they yeah. told me, and they planned to have more than a thousand by the end of 2020 um, before McDonald's and Taylor essentially cracked down on them. They had success with that kitsch device. They franchisees were getting it. Other people that had these Taylor machines were getting it and kind of cracking the code and, and helping themselves out a little bit. But then Taylor got involved. They try to place order for these devices. McDonald's, as you mentioned, uh, we think that a franchisee might have got the device and sent it over to Taylor. And McDonald's got involved and said to send emails to their franchisees. You can't use these devices. And in the end, they essentially killed Jeremy's business with this. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it began really with Taylor trying to buy the device, probably just to check it out. Taylor is also now selling a competitive device their own internet connected ice cream machine <laughs> right. that monitors the data in a very similar way, but it's, it's still in testing. After working on this for a very long time, a kitchen has been out for two years. Taylor still doesn't have a competitor truly on the market, but, but anyway, they were trying to get their hands on a kitsch device. Kitsch believes that, that they used private investigators to try to get one. Um, ultimately um, they did get one. It sounds like through a franchisee who essentially Kitsch is accusing him of violating his contract by handing it over to Taylor, and he will probably be involved in this lawsuit, unfortunately for him. McDonald's, I guess in an act of kind of loyalty to its longtime equipment supplier, they took Taylor's side and sent this email to every franchisee that tells them that Kitsch um, breaches the confidential data of the ice cream machines and can even cause like physical injury to staff in a oh, restaurant, wow. which all the franchisees that I spoke to thought was, was pretty far-fetched. I mean, it's, it's possible this thing could, I don't know, could hurt someone if you turn an ice cream machine on remotely. But Taylor tells you to unplug it when you're working on it regardless. So, right. um, you know, if you're following that rule, then there is no <laughs> risk, I, I don't believe. Yeah. So this seems to me to be much more of like a, a heavy-handed way of killing off a competitor but a competitor who actually was trying to make these machines work, you know, right, and exactly. um, if you want, if you want McDonald's ice cream, if that's your goal, if you want to go into a McDonald's and actually be able to buy their ice cream, then it seems like a very minor tragedy that McDonald's and Taylor teamed up to destroy this little business. Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been fun to talk about it. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.